Like you originally didn't even study composition. Well, I, I, I went to University College London and I studied genetics and microbiology. And, um, and I, finished, I finished a degree in it before I definitively changed direction. Um, although during that time, I suppose, well, this, this goes back to a time when uh, university education was a lot less vocationally oriented as it, as it is now. I mean, vocationally oriented in the minds of the students. Yeah. Um, because by the time I went there, um, I was already um, interested in very many things apart from the rather specialized um, scientific subject that I was studying. So it was it it always seemed like a fairly open question to me what I would end up doing with my life once that was finished. Even though the original degree that you were earning had a lot of vocational, like practical purposes. It's just something you were interested in, and like maybe I'll do something else when I'm finished. Well, I was, I was still, I am still interested in it actually. Um, so my interest in that subject has not has not diminished. But I think one one of the things that um, put me off being a scientific researcher in the end was the fact that although you know we we read all the time about. Um, uh, scientific breakthroughs and uh, um, new discoveries and, and so forth. And that's one of the things that, that is most exciting about, uh, about scientific work. But, of course, the fact of the matter is that very few people are actually making those discoveries and breakthroughs compared with the enormous number of people who are working on the problems. If you take a subject in the biological sciences to to um, university level, then you find that most of what you're doing consists of um, extremely repetitive and, uh, and not very interesting activities like growing bacteria on petri dishes um, thousands and thousands of times to get any kind of statistically significant results. Um, and I think one of the things in my mind eventually was that that didn't seem like a, such an interesting way to um, to spend my life. And when it finally became clear that I was going to devote it to, uh, to composing music, subsequently, of course, I found that composing music also consists to a very great extent of boring, repetitive yeah. activities. But, uh, but maybe, you know, one of the... Um, Maybe one of the advantages of having a scientific training was that I was prepared for that to a certain extent. So all those repetitive and to a certain extent mathematical things that, that I'm doing while I'm composing, um, while they are not too interesting in themselves, I suppose I, I've learned at a certain point to carry them out without, um, without boring myself to death. How do you do that? What's your strategy? I suppose it is to... Uh, it's like gardening in a way. It's something something that you can uh, you can take a certain joy in watching things grow, even though um, it's something that happens very slowly and involves a great deal of work, which often in itself is is not terribly interesting. So I think it's it's a question of being. I was going to say being oriented towards the the goal of one's endeavors, but I think it also has something to do with watching the process and trying to perceive 
um, whether the patterns that emerge from it are the ones that um, that you expected, and if they're not the ones that you expected, whether they're ones that are more interesting than the ones you expected. Um, I'm finding that today, actually, this morning, I've been working on um, a very uh, systematic treatment of pitch structures in um, in a composition that I'm working on now, and at this stage in the in the process. I really don't make any interventions at all. I've set up a system and I let it run and I'm writing out the resulting um, the resulting notes and then um, the next stage will be to to intervene in that in in the results of that. So there were certain kinds of pattern which which I had in mind which would be generated by um, by the system that I'm using but I also choose my uh, my systematic starting points so as to create the conditions for something unexpected to happen because if it just does what I expect it to do then I might as well not use the system in the first place. So what has it done that has been unexpected thus um, far? Well, if, if to put it in very simple terms, I mean I, I don't don't really want to go into any great detail about about that but to put it in very simple terms, the patterns that uh, that I was expecting to happen involved um, for the most part, gradually rising um, sequences of pitches, not in a straight line like scales, but with uh, with various kinds of more or less interesting self-similar patterns happening inside them. Um, and then sometimes, uh, for no apparent reason, it turns out that the patterns go in the opposite direction, just as a result of a number of systems colliding with one another and occasionally um producing the 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 opposite of what my original specifications for this system were and so there are enough system and variable variables going on that something is going to clash yeah well it's, i think expect. i think what i want to encourage those unexpected things to happen because um it it means that it, if if i choose all my systems and variables in the right sort of way to start with then I want to be able. To, I want to be able to discover something in them, as as well as just uh, running them and uh, and getting the results out. I, I want to find out something that that I didn't know was possible. And as I say, the, the, that to me is the is the whole point of um, using systematic procedures in in composition. That is not just to do the things you want them to do, because then if if that's all you wanted, you wouldn't need the system. You could just it could just come straight out of your head, but to generalize from from that initial uh, desire to create a particular thing, to generalize from it and find out what other possibilities it it has if if the um, if the material is is framed in a certain way. What about also creating a sense of consistency within a piece? Like for me, when I think of systems, I'm like, <clears throat> okay, there's a there's going to be a consistency to the sound and behavior of the music. Well, I think consistency is a variable as well. I submitted some writing recently for uh, for for assessment because I I just started working on a doctoral project. In fact, a month ago, and um, wait, you're earning a PhD? Yeah, I just I just started it. You just started but, a PhD? Do you have one already? No. Okay. <clears throat> um, Where is this? It's at Leeds University in England. Okay. And uh, the main reason for doing it, just in in, uh, in parentheses here, the main reason for doing it is is that this is the only way I'm going to get around to writing the book and putting my thoughts in order about the things that I've been doing over the past 
um, 30 years, and particularly in the last few years. So I was, uh, I was using a word which was inconsistency with the in in brackets at the beginning and calling that um, a compositional variable. And I was, I was um, picked up on this by my supervisor and said, well, what, what do you actually mean by this? Um, do you mean consistency, consistency and inconsistency, or do you mean consistency or inconsistency? And what do you mean by consistency in the first place? And I suppose what, what I mean by consistency, I don't know if this, if this chimes with, uh, with what you had in mind, but it tends to be something which is either generated by or analyzable in terms of some kind of rule-based system. Yes, so, that's what I mean. Yeah. So in, uh, in the, the counterpoint of Palestrina, for instance, um, the consistency is what is generated by what later became analyzed as the rules about parallel fifths and octaves and, and contrary motion and all those things that we yeah. know from our counterpoint studies. But the the point as far as Palestrina was concerned was not to create a set of arbitrary rules but to generate a certain kind of harmonic consistency right and and of course you find the same thing motivating the um, invention of the um, twelve tone system by schoenberg as you say the um, the systematic approach can can generate a certain a certain kind of consistency, and that the the flavor of that consistency or the color of it, if you like, is something which depends on the kind of system you're using. It could be the um, the rules of sixteenth uh, century counterpoint or it could be um, twelve tone composition or something which is very particular to um, to the composition in question, which tends much more to be the case these days, I think, than it was in previous times. But I suppose one, one of the reasons why I tend to define my, um, my systems in statistical rather than deterministic terms is that I'm interested in, um, in probing the limits of that consistency and where it tips over into something else, where something can no longer be perceived as, as belonging to the um, uh, the system that you mean that perceived in it. how you hear it or perceived in how somebody you, analyzing it on a piece of paper okay as how you hear it. so how do you do that you're just tossing in variables different types of variables well one one way of doing it as i say is is to define the parameters not in terms of deterministic but in terms of uh, of statistical behavior or on the other hand to give the um the systematic approach so many variables to work with that the multi-dimensional space that the um, that the music then moves through has so many dimensions and is so large that you yeah, can't. That's what I meant the latter. Yeah, you yeah, can't possibly predict all the places that it can go to. Yeah, and then at, at a certain point, yes, you can certainly you can analyze what happens in terms of the system that generated it. But the um, the perceived envelope of the material is constantly being pushed. So by envelope, I mean. At a certain point in a piece of music, you get an idea of um, what can and can't happen. And one of the prime movers of, of musical form in, in many, if not all kinds of music, I think, is, is how that envelope changes its shape over the course of its duration. And that shape changing and that pushing of the envelope and possibly breaking out of it um, is something that I try to build in from the start. But there's a second issue there as well, which is particularly of concern to me these days in terms of this consistency or inconsistency question. And that is 
to investigate or to discover in different circumstances what happens when, for example, the um, systematically composed framework of the music is infiltrated by improvisation. Or you could see it the other way around as well. The default position is free improvisation and what the compositional aspect does is it it seeds that improvisation with particular points of focus or, or um, yeah, let's say particular points of focus for now, which influence it without prescribing it in any way. And that's, that's an idea which is, um, which is particularly prevalent in, in a lot of the things that I've done. In, well, a lot of the improvisations the that you've done. Yeah. Or, just in, or also in your written music. Well, in the written music as well, because um, this, this idea of seeded improvisation, of, of taking, taking improvisation as the default and throwing, throwing these focal points which take the form of uh, precisely notated elements or, on the other hand, um, fixed-media electronic sounds, um, is something that's been growing over the past, since the end of the, the 20th century. And back then you have the... Um, Are you not ta- you're, not, you're talking about in general, not just your work. No, right? I'm, well, yeah. I'm talking about my work in particular. Yeah, but, yeah. But I yeah. may not be the only person who's yeah, doing yeah. this. Yeah, yeah. That's also, I don't want to say, I mean, not trend, but that's also something that a lot of people are thinking about as well. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I think that this, this kind of idea will become increasingly important for various reasons. One is that, um, is that composer performers are using digital resources in their, in their performances much more than before. And notation is not necessarily the best way of characterizing what you do with, with a computer. No, it's when very you, awkward, actually, when you try and do that. Yeah, when, when Usually you, graphically notated squiggles and then just a patch that is yeah, the real notation. Yeah, know? exactly. And, and I'm not a big fan of, uh, of graphic squiggles myself, so I, I like to keep, keep those to an absolute minimum or, or eliminate them altogether. One way of doing that is to push the musical communication of uh, the communication of the musical ideas to push it to extremes, and that is to say that um, we either have free improvisation or we have something precise, which is either um, precisely notated or is completely fixed in terms of an electronic sound which has been composed and pre-recorded, and, and to try and examine different ways in which those two things can can relate to one another. So, so one reason why um, this kind of approach is in the air at the moment is to do with with technology um, I think but another reason is that um, in the course of the 20th century well probably in the middle of the 20th century it became clear that we'd reached a position where um, there was no sound or combination of sounds which could be definitively characterized as unmusical that is to say that any sound or combination of sounds could uh, in principle find their way into a musical composition so that um, means of expansion of musical resources reached a point beyond which it couldn't go. You know, once once you get to the 1950s music of Cage, for instance, then um, and particularly, well, a little bit later, the Variation series, you get get to the point where the music can basically admit any sound into itself, and and there is no sense of, to use the word once more, inconsistency about it, because consistency itself has been redefined somehow, and I think. Um, that another reason, going back to the, the, the kind of procedures that, that we've been talking about so far, another reason for that is that um, the, the next place that we have to go in terms of finding new directions for music 
is looking at the strategies, the methodologies for making music, and how, in particular, the improvisational method of composition can be seen to relate to other methods rather than being seen as antithetical to them. What do you mean other methods? like uh, uh, Well, like notation know, or yeah. composing things in a computer, in, in, in a studio or, or whatever. This was something of a breakthrough for me about 12 years ago when the realization came upon me that uh, these different strands of my musical activity which were going on at that time and, and not really touching one another very much. By that you mean, imp- uh, in, I mean in, improvising <clears throat> with your uh, duo... Yeah, I mean, and, uh, I mean, improvising uh, and and notating music. Yeah. That that actually the most useful way to um, to view those would be as alternative methods of composition, which have their own particular structural and poetic possibilities. And therefore, that changed everything as far as I was concerned. Because then I thought, well, in that case, we should really concentrate when improvising on those things that only improvisation can do or those things that are so unlikely to happen in a more traditional compositional framework um, that they might as well be ignored, and give, vice on, versa. Give, give me an example of something that only improvisation music can do that... Well, um, I'd, have to, I'd have to give you an example by, uh, by hearing the music, actually, because I think a lot of the time these things are, are rather hard to characterize because we they axiomatically are things that that can't really be explained in terms of notation, you know. Um, But almost every time I'm involved in an improvisational performance, there there is at least one moment when I think to myself, um, I'm listening or I'm taking part or both, and I think to myself, what just happened is so unlikely to have been the product of any single human imagination that it really is some something which is particular to um, to to this method, and I don't I don't mean just a combination of sounds which nobody would have thought of orchestrating in notational terms. I think firstly of things that couldn't be put in notational terms at all, or which would be very like a, on a technical level. You'd have to like a you'd have to have like eight staves for a voice, for example. Yeah, for something. Yeah. That, and of course, some composers yeah. do that kind of thing. Yeah, um, but. I want to, if, if I'm dealing with, with that kind of mm-hmm. issue, I, I, I prefer to put myself in, in the, um, to imagine myself from the point of view of the, of the performer, because the performer is not thinking about doing eight different things. They, they do, in fact, form a unity of some kind, even if it involves, first of all, disassembling the parameters of performance and then putting them back together in a different order. And this putting back together, I think, is the, is the most important thing for me in the sense that that is what gives a different and individual identity to an instrument, which is very much tied up with the identity of the performer in the case of, uh, of an improviser. And it's also something you would the, probably never think of as, a, as someone who's not a violin player. You know? No, but I, but I do try to, to find ways of doing that as, as a composer. If I'm writing for the violin, you know, the first stage is that I might think to myself, how can we um, disassemble the, um, the, the actions of violin playing, for example, that you have two hands, they can both move in three dimensions. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, but the thing is, like, as a, as a violin player, you're, you're never going to have that detailed of knowledge and also kind of the muscle memory and intuitive feel as a violin player. Hmm. So you could try and reorder it 
but you might be it might be wrong and awkward <clears throat> whereas a violin player would know how to reorder the movements um, and maybe they wouldn't know how to notate it they would do it in a probably a more convincing way and maybe something that could be translated from violin player to violin player yeah but still you know there are things that going to the other side of the the equation there are things that you can do with notation that you can't do with improvisation and one of those is that i can reinvent the violin according to my own ideas of how how the physical activity of playing and the sound are are brought together that's one issue to go to go back to what you were saying one issue is the technical issue of what can be notated for instruments and voices and what can't, and, and computers as well, for that matter. But I think another issue is to do with the kinds of structures which emerge from improvisation, um, which, again, are things that, that are very unlikely to, um, to occur by other means. And, and I try to learn from these experiences and, and to incorporate them in, into my, my own compositional thinking. But... The most important thing for me about what these possibilities that exist in um, in improvisation but not in notated composition or to qualify that once more are very unlikely to occur in notated composition are the results of um, a number of different people collaborating and negotiating um, a single result that's the big difference as far as I'm concerned it's the it's the collaborative idea the, uh, the the collaborative situation. So to give you an example, last week I was uh, playing a, a concert of improvised music with uh, with four four other people, and we had decided in advance on on only one feature, which was that the music was going to carry on until everybody had finished. So it wasn't going to be corralled into two 45-minute sets with an interval in between, which is the comfortable way to do things, and probably would have uh, would have improved the concert in general if we'd done that but there, but I thought when this idea was suggested that what, maybe we can discover something by by doing things that way instead and what in fact happened was that after 75 or 80 minutes or so two of the performers left and that that left three of us behind who uh, at that time were involved in a very tight, very complex, drone-like musical structure. Um, and that then continued for another 10 minutes at the end of the piece. That's something very without, common in improvisations when like without, a drone, without a drone appears. Yeah, yeah. It, not so much when I'm playing, though, actually. I mean, it, yeah. tends, it tends not to be something that I involve myself in so much. But yeah, if you're sitting next to an electric guitar player who has a, an ebo, then I suppose it's going to happen from time to time. Yeah. But the fact that the the structure was influenced by two people actually leaving the performance space and then the remaining people thinking, well, we could carry on forever or or not. Um, at a certain point, there was a silence and that silence lasted seemingly for, for, for an eternity. I think it was probably two minutes or something like that before um, everybody finally got the idea into their head that the music was over now because there had been silences before. Those moments when nobody including the performers, know that the music is finished. Um, is, uh, that's, of course, very idiomatic to the, um, to the improvisational way of doing things. And it doesn't have to be a music that settles or fades out. It could be just in, in mid-phrase, um, everything is suddenly thrown up into the air. And then the ensuing silence goes on for just so long as to convince everybody that that would be an interesting point 
to end it. And then retrospectively, you look back at the structural movements that led to that point. Yes, in in the memory, then it it becomes something which which is quite different from from the kind of structures that would occur to me anyway in terms of uh, of a, a notated composition. When I'm working on notated compositions, I'm thinking all the time about proportions of duration and uh, balance or imbalance between different elements and this kind of thing, which is not really possible to do when you're playing a free improvisation along with other people. You could, and I think you could in some ways if people had timers. You could, but then... If you had the restrictions, <clears throat> if you if you had pretty strict restrictions within an improvisation, yeah, like at 3.34, you have to move on to this material. Sure, you, know? you could do that. And, um, it, you know, but, and at 80 minutes and 47 seconds, the piece ends. Yeah. You know? yeah. Um, yes, that, that could be done. That is then infecting the... Um, the musical structure with pre-composed elements. So it's already something a little bit different from free improvisation. But that's a very interesting thing When you thing say improvisation, do. do you mean free improvisation? Um, generally, I do, yes. Okay. I mean, when, where my own practice is concerned, yes, because I'm not, um, I've never really been a jazz player or anything like that. So I've, I think... Well, it doesn't have to be jazz, but it could be an example like I just gave. When mm. this time go, timer goes off, we move on to these, you know, this material. Yeah, well, I suppose, as I said before, my default is that nothing is decided in advance, apart from, of course, the selection of performers who are going to take part, because that... And the instruments they play. As, yeah, that, that, as we know from, uh, from jazz history, is, um, is an extremely important compositional decision to have made at some point, who is going to take part. In many ways, you can, you can see, when, when you look back... At, uh, at what happened during a, a freely improvised composition, um, you can see that some, some kind of framework is there, some, some kind of framework that, which is collectively negotiated between the players without actually discussing it verbally, which is not so very different from the kinds of framework that, that in other musics like jazz, for instance, might take the form of chord sequences or... Um, head solo, head structures, and, and so on. But the difference with free improvisation is not that the framework is gone, but that the framework is recreating itself um, in the course of playing the music. And by the end, the, the framework has completed, its, completed itself in a way, and that, that composition has been composed. So a lot of my thinking in this area has to do with taking seriously the idea that, that improvisation is a, is a form or a method of, of composing. Anyway, just to, to wind back a few minutes. So on, on the one hand, then, I thought it would be interesting, or I felt compelled, let's put it that way, to, to examine those areas of improvisation which couldn't be composed using other means. But at the same time, to think about those things which composition can do, which are very li- unlikely to occur in an improvisational context. Um, like, for example, the concept of unison, which can be... Um, explored in very many different ways, and that's something that you know. If you look at a big, a big composition like construction, for instance, you see that the concept of unison has quite a yeah. large part to play in in very many different ways through through the course of that. And then, of course, once once you have um, some kind of conception as to what is particular to um, the improvisational way of doing things and what is particular to the notational way of doing things then it seems to me logical to say okay now we're going to put them together um, and use the resulting possibilities as something which is 
something which combines the the potential of those two approaches, to name only those, because there may be other approaches used as well. I suppose over and above all of this is the idea that I want to be constantly thinking of ways of expanding the potential of the music, expanding the directions that it can possibly take. And I don't know whether it looks like this to anybody else, but you know, going back to your, your first question about uh, biographical matters, um, I would see the development of um, the work that I've been doing since since I started the earliest compositions of mine that still exist which date from about 1982 from then from then on I, I feel the development has been concentric I characterize it to myself as constantly adding things to a range of possibilities rather than taking a pathway and becoming adept in it or mature or whatever the word is but what interests me more is the attempt to, to find new directions for it because I think if, if I'm constantly discovering things in, in what I'm doing, then hopefully the people who hear the music will as well.
Do you think that do you think that original idea, like that kernel that you had to keep on adding to, is still there? The original kernel. Yeah, or I mean, however you wanted to define it. You're saying you just um, maybe you, you maybe said not. The, you, you said the idea is just kind of like constantly adding possibilities and hmm. you know being able to expand it instead of just be instead of just becoming incredibly proficient in a certain method of hmm. composing. So but, what, but what you're you, saying is what, you keep on, what is you, there if, in yeah, the center? Yeah, yeah, if you keep on adding stuff, then what's the, you know, then potentially the message of it or whatever, or the, some, the thing that originally made it uh, unique might not be identifiable anymore or hmm. there, or maybe you might add something and it's so, you know, it's such this crazy, you know, uh, unique thing onto itself that all of a sudden everything is seen through that prism. Yeah, well, I suppose where it starts off from is an idea of of making audible the reason why I found music so compelling and fascinating from from quite an early age. And if I look back at that now, I think at the center of it is some idea of of, of what I think the most fascinating innovations in the music of the last century were. So... At the center, there is this idea of taking my fascination and and turning it outwards. You know, why why did I find this this music so so attractive from from the first moment that that I came across it? Why did you? Um, well, <laughs> that's a very good question. I, I I think that I'm spending my life answering that that question. You know, like when I was about twelve or thirteen, I started getting interested in uh, in listening to to music. I mean, music apart from uh, what was on AM radio all the time. And being in the position of um, not having any um, guide to tell me what I should or shouldn't listen to, I ended up listening to everything. And I found very soon that, well, in particular, I came across the music of Stockhausen at that time. Somehow there was something there was something about it and, you know, about Xenakis and Kagel and numbers of other composers whose, whose work I came across at that time. And for that matter, um, jazz composers too. Not, not, I mean, I don't don't want to limit this to uh, the post-war European avant-garde. I suppose that that was where it started from. When I started hearing this music, I thought to myself firstly that that this it's it's obvious to me that this music is saying something, whatever it is, about the time and place in which we're living. Um, and the again the so, saying something about human potential. I guess I wouldn't have put it in exactly those terms when I was thirteen years yeah, old. Of course, yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. This is you. Projecting, this is, yeah. I'm projecting my thoughts back to that time now. Um, and uh, anyway, you know, I thought I thought it was uh, I thought it was a wonderful thing to be able to listen to this music, which was authentically of 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 its own time, and thinking that in order for any music to to gain a wider significance, then it first has to be authentic to its own time. And I suppose at the same time, there was the idea in my head thinking, well, why, why doesn't everybody listen to this? You know, what, what is so strange about this music that everybody doesn't listen to it? And, and then um, at a certain point, you get the idea that, that many people in the world think that there's something rather difficult about it, yeah. which I never experienced. Although it was well, no, it was never difficult for you at first to uh, access it and decode it, the like the language of it, and I'm talking well, about like I a don't, semantic uh, 
yeah. you know, understanding. Uh, but but I think I think that there are various different ways of of entering that world, you know. And one of them is to do with indeed decoding its uh, its syntax and and working out. Well, I was going to say working out what the music is trying to say, but who knows what the music is trying to say? You know, it, it says different things to different people, and I think there should always be um, various different points of entry into that world. And I I try my best to to imagine that when I'm composing something that there are various points of entry into that as well, not just one which comes with a load of knowledge and expectations of, of how the music is being composed, but also um, that there's a point of entry which is maybe on a, a, much, a much less mediated level than that. Because that was how I um, how I experienced the music that I was talking about in in the first place. You know that there was nothing difficult about it, and so I guess that that's that's the center, that's the kernel that that I'm trying to get at, that starting point, and trying to answer the question: Well, why did it affect me in that way? To answer that question, not by trying to analyze it or analyze myself or analyze the relationship between it and me. But to answer the question in, in terms of music, in, in terms of turning, turning that fascination or that compulsion back outwards and saying something like, I don't find this difficult and I'm a pretty ordinary human being, you know, I don't, there's nothing particular in my background which would lead me to be more or less sensitive to, uh, to these things. And if, therefore, um, I'm making something which, which I remain um, fascinated by, which I'm constantly discovering new potentials in, then I would hope that that, that sense of potential, that sense of optimism, I suppose you would call it, um, is something that, that can communicate itself to the, the people who hear it, whether or not they understand what my uh, systematic compositional methods or the extent to which improvisation plays a part might might be from one moment to the next. You don't need to listen to those things, although it might be interesting to do so. I wonder if that if that approach and way of thinking about it seems more like a you you just saying, I really like this in order for me to deal with it and understand it more, I have to participate in also creating it. That's another way of putting yeah, yeah, it for yeah. sure. Do you think that gives you more of a sense of being in a scene and working with people and, you know, improvising with people. Because some people could see it as, I just like writing this strange music and I can do it in isolation. And, and then other people are like, I want to be part of this. Well, I, I talked about it in terms of um, taking this fascination and turning it outwards. Yeah. Um, and I think the, the act of taking it outwards is turning it outwards is, is um, that's an important part of it you know I'm not um, I'm not satisfied just to do it do it for myself because I suppose a, another way of looking at this this issue that we're discussing at the moment is that if the experience of of music as a listener made such a profound change in the way that I looked at the world which it did you know at, at Again, at quite an early age, but but it continues to do so, and I've never really looked back, so to speak, from from that point. I've never thought, well, maybe I was wrong about it, or you know, um, if it can have such a profound effect, then that how should I put this? One one of the ways in which one can react to that is to say, 
I would be interested in in trying to keep that effect going somehow, not not only on myself, but on on the people who might hear the music. I mean, it's important that people should hear it. And I think also, if I don't know if this answers your question, it's important that that a collaborative approach to music making should be part of uh, of what happens. That's something which has become increasingly um, apparent to me over the years, and and having had experiences of working in various different kinds of of context, you know, and it's a it's clear that a great deal of the work that I've done, um, especially since. I suppose the beginning of the 90s has been in collaboration with a fairly limited number of performers. And if I compare, for example, the what happens when I come with a with a new composition to um, to an ensemble like Elysian, and on the other hand, what happens when I come with a new composition to the London Sinfonietta, those are two very different things. Which one um, do you prefer? Because Elysian's like, oh, hey, Richard, what's going on? And you're like, hey, guys. You know. Yeah. Well, exactly. And and there is uh, now, however long, you know, over twenty years of shared experience there, which and like half the pieces you've ever written were since since you started working with them twenty yeah. years ago have been for have yeah, been for them. That's right. And of course, yeah. the personnel has changed in the meantime, but um, it hasn't changed so suddenly or so completely that that we're not talking about the same group identity let's say that 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 we started off with or or and anyone who enters that ensemble has got to be familiar with at least some of your repertoire since they do so much of your stuff i suppose they would yeah and and also you know it it works both ways because the the ensemble and i have grown up together so to speak because when we started working together they had existed for um four or five years or so and so you know a large part of my history and a large part of the ensemble's history are intertwined with one another so obviously it's it's possible to um to achieve things in that kind of context um which it's much more difficult to achieve than if if you're writing for symphony orchestra achieve amazing things actually Hmm. i mean and i mean i love i love the idea of writing for symphony orchestra it's it's something it's a sound which has been with me all my all my listening life so to speak it's obviously not the center of my activity but it is it is a part of my activity and but then I always think when it actually happens, if only it could have been different, you know, if, if only there were, um, if only this institution was, was set up in such a way as to allow that kind of collaborative approach that, uh, that I've had with, uh, with Elysian, for example. But how could they be? And then I no, I'm, I mean that as like more of a statement than a question. Well, like the economics of a symphony orchestra, and you know, I don't, I don't know if they were if they're unionized like they are in the states, like in the, and how they get their money and what the audience expects of them, and the amount of rehearsal time they're able to give, and the repertoire that they learn in order to like prepare themselves to get a job in a symphony orchestra. There's so many. This is a rant that I go in all the time on this. There's so many things going against it mm-hmm. that when you show up with your elision head you know they're gonna they're like what are you we don't know what you're talking about yeah well it's true yeah but but then you know you have the choice of whether to whether to go along with that that whole complex as it is um and of course there is a great temptation to do so or to imagine a world in which a symphony orchestra could do those things um and then write a piece and then have it fail yeah, well, I I guess that um, 
well, failure. What what does failure mean in this in this context? Maybe failure means that it gets played once and then the orchestra doesn't want to go near it again. In which case, yes, I mean, all of my orchestral music has failed in that regard. I'm not even talking about but, failing in that way. I'm talking but, about them not having the expertise to communicate whatever idea you want to put forward. And, and well, by idea, I mean sonic reality. Yeah, 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 yeah. But but I think I think there has to be a difference in approach between writing for symphony orchestra and writing for an ensemble of soloists to begin with. You know because if you're going to write for for an entire orchestra in in the same way that you would for an ensemble of soloists, then there are various reasons why um, why that music isn't really going to be heard. For for a start, it's going to be performed in much larger halls than than chamber music generally is. The musicians are going to be so far from one another in in some ways that the um, the speed of sound in between one part of the orchestra and another is going to act as a break on the kind of intricacy of the of the material that you can use. So th- there are certain there are certain built-in um, restrictions, I suppose you could call them, on writing for symphony orchestra, even if you had um, an orchestra of Elysian players. Yeah. So then you have to start thinking about, well, how do we imagine using, um, using an ensemble like this in a different sort of way? And I suppose one way of looking at it is to group it together in, in ways which are analogous to the way that single instruments are used in a composition for fewer performers. Um, and then the obvious way of doing that, I suppose, is to do it by instrumental families, which is why I don't do it that way, because you know, then, then you're going to end up with something that sounds like traditional orchestral music. Yeah. Um, but to create instruments, in other, wor- in other words, by taking things from different, different sections of the orchestra and putting them together, which is a little bit like what you would do... What, do you mean would, physically rearranging them in space? Um, I haven't actually done that because it tends to be something that changes so often during the course of a composition that it would involve you know, musicians walking around on stage, which is generally not such a great idea, I think. But imagine you know, what, what we were saying about um, uh, the violin player before, that you, you take apart the, um, the characteristics of that instrument and, and its relationship with the player, and then you put them back together in a different order. And so looking at the, um, the orchestra as um, either a single organism or a, a collection of organisms and, and doing that same thing to them, taking the orchestral sections out, apart and putting them together in different ways and trying to find different kinds of uh, musical connection between the sounds apart from the fact that they're produced using an um, analogous um, performing technique. Of course, by doing that, you're inevitably going to be dealing with slightly less or considerably less intricate um, instrumental activity than you would be in a, in a piece for, um, for fewer performers. So I'm not concerned with writing something that orchestral musicians are not going to be able to read to start with, you know, like the eight staves we were talking about before. Yeah. But the problem that I came up with, um, which has, which I've thought about a lot, the first time that, um, that I wrote for symphony orchestra, one of the, um, performers was helpful, helpful enough to come up to me after the performance and tell me exactly what he thought was wrong. And what he thought was wrong was that in this music, as opposed to more traditional ways of, uh, of writing for orchestra, it's very difficult for any individual to tell what part they are playing in the whole. Because I could say to um, the sixth percussionist, well, you're playing together with one of the piccolos and one of the double basses at this point. But that player is not going to know that because it's not in his or her part to start with. And it might be something that is 
not only transitory, but also in, in a process of changing from one kind of relationship to another. So if you start doing things like that, then really the only way of, of making sure that everybody has the same kind of idea of what's going on as they would do in a more traditionally orchestrated piece would be to spend so much time rehearsing it that, that all, of that, all of that becomes familiar. Um, so I suppose what I'm doing is... Or, or lots of cues, con, you know, violin. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm, I'm working on it. You know, yeah. the, the next time I write a piece for, or, for orchestra, if there is another time, then I hope to have uh, refined my approach to these, these issues a little bit more because I don't want to write something that the players aren't going to get something out of playing. Like orchestral players don't mind being a cog in the wheel as long as they know where that cog is, basically. yeah. yeah. It's not that I'm trying to ride roughshod over the institution and say and give rise to the kind of passive aggressive response that often comes out of orchestral musicians if they're asked to do something which is a little bit different from what they usually do or involves more work than what they usually do. What I would like is for the musicians in a symphony orchestra to look at it and, and think to themselves, yeah, okay, this is this is worth um, this is worth a little bit more attention than uh, than I would normally give. But I mean, how you do that, I don't know. It's a matter of chance. To put it in blatantly simple terms, we always sit down to do the best thing we could do, but we don't always succeed in, uh, in that.